I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. In today's reading, we begin the book of Acts. Today we'll be looking at Acts chapters 1 through 3. Let's begin our reading with an introduction to the book of Acts. Acts was written by Luke as a continuation of his gospel, the Gospel of Luke. While addressed to an unknown Christian named Theophilus, it's a history of the early church after the ascension of Jesus. The book of Acts is inspired by the Holy Spirit to be an accurate account of the activities of the early church. The question is, can it be regarded as more than that? I mean, to what extent should we adopt the book of Acts as a doctrinal book? In other words, are the words and events found in Acts to be heeded and emulated as absolute doctrine without further validation from the epistles of the New Testament? To answer that question, let's analyze it in the light of what we understand about Old Testament Scripture. For example, Second Samuel is a God-inspired account of David's life. However, it's not an endorsement of all David's activities as those that should be emulated or even necessarily respected. We understand that Second Samuel is an accurate account of a man, David, of whom it is said in 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 8, who followed me, God, with all his heart. What about the central characters of the book of Acts? Can we assume that each action by James, Peter, Paul, and the other apostles was infallible just because it was recorded in the book of Acts? We don't assume that about David in 2 Samuel, but we do acknowledge that the inspiration of Scripture guarantees that it's an accurate record of David's actions, good or bad. That has to be the case with the book of Acts also. The characters in the book of Acts were fallible men who were continuing the ministry commissioned by Jesus himself. Not everything they did and said, as recorded in the book of Acts, is necessarily to be adopted as doctrinal practice any more than everything David did and said is to be so regarded. As a matter of fact, Paul speaks of Peter in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, and says this, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Paul shows us that Peter had his own faults. So here's what we do with the book of Acts. The epistles, the letters of the New Testament to believers, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to be doctrinal for us. We see the doctrine of these letters, and then we get an insight into the historical setting in which these doctrines were being practiced by seeing these practices in the book of Acts. For example, we see the qualifications for a deacon in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But we need to see Acts chapter 6 to see the necessity that prompted their selection. I was once a member of a very small congregation that believed every church, regardless of size, should have exactly seven deacons, no more, no less. This number had been adopted because this was the number of chosen deacons in Acts chapter 6. The book of Acts was not meant to be used in that fashion. We may look at actions by the notable characters of this book and weigh them against the doctrinal content of the epistles of the New Testament, and that's how we'll determine exactly how we'll apply doctrinal principles. It's a very dangerous precedent to use the book of Acts as a one-step doctrinal book. 
Now let's get into the verses of Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Here we see what happened for the six weeks after the resurrection. Verse 1. The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye should be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and the cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing into heaven? The same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come again in like manner, as ye have seen him go into heaven. The former treatise of verse 1 is a reference to the Gospel of Luke. Jesus taught his disciples for 40 days, in verse 3 we see that, after his resurrection prior to his ascension in verses 9 through 11 here. Luke includes a bit of overlap with his gospel account of Luke chapter 24, verses 49 to 51, where he reported the ascension of Jesus there also. In that account, Luke gives the last-minute instructions from Jesus prior to his resurrection when he says this, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem, until ye be endued with power from on high. Now, Luke recaps those instructions again here in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, where it says, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard of me. It's interesting to note that the disciples in verse 6 once again seek the answer to the most frequently pondered question of Jesus' entire ministry, and it's this, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? Keep in mind who Jesus Christ is, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, Christ being the Greek transliteration to English for the Anointed One, or the Old Testament Mashiach, which is the Hebrew for Messiah. He's the one who's to rule the earth from Jerusalem upon the restored throne of David. They want to know if Jesus plans to initiate this kingdom and rule right now. The answer, no, not right now. Then, as his last words before his final first Advent ascension, he commissions his disciples in verse 8 with instructions to take the message of Jesus Christ worldwide. These instructions coincide with those we commonly refer to as the Great Commission, found in Matthew 28, 16-20, Mark 16, 15-20, Luke 24, 44-53. These instructions are in contrast to the near-exclusive outreach to Jews only during the earthly ministry of Jesus. The ability to effectively proclaim this message will be facilitated by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to be made manifest when we get down to Acts chapter 2 
That'll be a few days later, and we'll look at that passage in just a few moments. Finally, in verses 9 through 11, we see the ascension with the promise returned by presumably two angels. Their comments regarding the ascension of Jesus are quite precise in verse 11. They say, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come again in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. This last meeting with Jesus' disciples takes place on Mount Olivet. Therefore, based upon verses 9 through 11, it's to be assumed that these comments mean that Jesus' return will be, first of all, personal according to Revelation chapter 1-7. It says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. Not only personal, but his return will be visible. The Battle of Armageddon is recorded in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. You don't get any more visible than that. And finally, the return of Jesus Christ will be to the Mount of Olives, or also known as Mount Olivet. And Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4 makes exactly that prophecy. Incidentally, if you wondered where the crucifixion became known as the Passion of Christ, here it is in verse 3 in the King James Version, where it says, "...to whom also he showed himself alive after his Passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God." The Greek word pasco, translated passion, there is used 42 times in the New Testament, but only translated passion this one time. It's almost always translated suffer. So there's a little table I've provided in the written notes of BibleTruck.org to show you what took place between the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, you can look at that and get some perspective. Let's make special mention of Acts chapter 1-8 here, since it becomes an important motivation for the actions of the remainder of the book of Acts. It says this, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. It's unlikely that the thousands of Jews who received Christ on the day of Pentecost had any idea that they would be sharing their newfound faith in Christ with Gentiles. However, the command of Christ here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is very clear. Samaritans and Gentiles being the uttermost part of the earth. This commission unfolds quickly in the book of Acts. The Samaritans are evangelized in Acts chapter 8, and the Gentiles in the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Afterward, Paul goes everywhere preaching to anyone who will listen, Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. So then we're in the upper room. And um, what to do while we're waiting in this room? Well, here's what they do. They choose an apostle to replace Judas. Verse 12 of chapter 1. Then returned they into Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room, where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James. These all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, The number of the names together were about an hundred and twenty. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, 
which was God to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue, Akadama, that is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. Wherefore of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. All right, let's get our bearings here. It's ten days before the Feast of Pentecost, and the disciples have been told in verse 4 not to leave Jerusalem. They've been told instead to wait for the promise of the Father. Luke recorded Jesus' words like this in Luke twenty four forty nine, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. While in the upper room... Peter takes charge. He decides to replace the fallen Judas Iscariot rather than just wait as they were instructed to do. In verses 21 and 22, Peter, through deductive reasoning, outlines the qualifications for replacement apostle as follows. He must be an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry from John's baptism to the ascension, including the resurrection. Then they cast lots to choose between two candidates who meet this criteria. Matthias wins the lottery. That's right. It wasn't a vote to elect. It was more like throwing dice. That's exactly what casting lots means. If you'd like to see a more complete overview of this practice of casting lots, then go to Proverbs 16 in BibleTrack.org in those notes and, and uh, look at my little article there in the yellow box regarding the casting of lots and how it was conducted. In the Old Testament, they depended upon God to direct the outcome, incidentally, if the book of Acts is to be used as a doctrinal book on its own, then shouldn't Christians be making important decisions today based upon the use of a lottery? After Peter quotes David as his justification in Psalm 69.25 and Psalm 109.8 for doing this, casting lots for a replacement for Judas, they now have their twelfth apostle. When you take a look at those two psalms, you must admit that Peter used a lot of latitude in selecting those two verses as justification for his actions. Now, here's a problem, though. Paul claimed to be an apostle, and he uses similar criteria in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, when he says this, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? Does Paul mean that he should be numbered with the other 11 as the 12th apostle instead of Matthias? Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. Here's what he says. Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? Does it not appear that Paul is comparing his apostleship to that of the original 11? So, based upon his Damascus Road experience of seeing Jesus there... 
Paul seems to be indicating that he meets the criteria for Jesus' selected apostleship. Now, for those who would maintain that both Matthias and Paul were apostles by that standard criteria, look at the words of Jesus in Matthew 19:28. Here's what he said. Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. But wait, there's more. We see the new Jerusalem, which is established in Revelation chapter 21. Look what verse 14 of that chapter says. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So, who is that twelfth apostle? Is it Matthias or is it Paul? Is it possible that Peter overstepped his authority here by selecting a successor to Judas based upon the lottery? Isn't it more likely that the Jesus-selected Paul is actually to be the name written on one of those foundations in the New Jerusalem rather than Matthias, who, by the way, we never hear from again past this chapter? That brings us to chapter 2. Get some water. Their hair is on fire. I like this chapter, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians, and Medes, and Elamites, and the dwellers in Mesopotamia, and in Judea, and in Cappadocia, in Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, in Egypt, and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews, and proselytes. Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongue the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. Well, of course, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus are bigger events, but we're talking church history here. The Feast of Pentecost came each year 50 days after the first Sabbath following the Passover. Therefore, it's always on a Sunday. As 120 of Jesus' disciples are gathered in a room in Jerusalem on this no-work Jewish holiday, the Holy Spirit is manifested among them in a threefold miracle. Now, let's take a look at that threefold miracle. First, there was a mighty rushing wind which filled the room in verse 2. Then there were these cloven tongues, these fire little things that danced on their heads in verse 3. And finally, they spoke in tongues familiar to those viewing this experience in verses 4 through 12. By the way, when people talk about having the Pentecostal experience present in their church services, how many of these three miracles of the day of Pentecost do you suppose are present? If you say one, let me remind you that those languages spoken were heard as real languages in verse 8. They weren't unknown languages. Now how many? If this discussion interests you, then let me encourage you to look at my commentary on 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 1 Corinthians 14. 
And there you'll find additional perspective regarding the practice of speaking in tongues. The miracle of the day of Pentecost facilitated the message which Peter preached, inviting these Jews to receive Christ as Savior. I'm relatively certain that Peter is exercising here an authority which was given to him by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to take the gospel message to Jerusalem. Well, that's been done. And Samaria. Well, that happens in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25. And to the uttermost part of the earth, the Gentiles. And that happens in Acts chapter 10, verses 24 to 48. On all three occasions, it was Peter who was entrusted to deliver the message of the gospel preceded by miracles. Therefore, it seems logical that the keys of Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20, that those keys are used here on these three occasions to open the gospel door to the whole world. In verses 14 to 41, we need somebody to explain what has just taken place here. Well, Peter's the man. Verse 14, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams." And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are partakers." Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. 
Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, and to all them that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received the word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about three thousand souls. Well, here's Peter. He can explain the threefold miracle of the day of Pentecost. As a matter of fact, it's his job to explain it. I'm convinced that this is the authority that had been given to him back in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. Furthermore, Jesus seemed to have reinforced his authority in John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. Peter stands up to preach for the sake of the Judeans who were mocking them in verse 13. He starts out by saying, it's too early to be drunk. What a way to start a message. Then he explains the provisions of the new covenant found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. While not naming it specifically, that's nonetheless what he's talking about. He does, however, make reference to Joel chapter 2, verse 28, to explain the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the midst, when he says, "...and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh." And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. While that prophecy is not to be fulfilled until the days leading up to the second coming of Jesus at the end of the tribulation, the internalization of God's Spirit and believers is the aspect of the new covenant here that Peter is accentuating. Peter preaches a powerful message including proofs that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. He even quotes David from Psalm 1610 in verses 27 and again in 31, and then from Psalm 1101 in verses 34 and 35. Peter pulls no punches in accusing the crowd of thousands who were now listening that they had crucified the Messiah. In verse 36, look what he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. When Peter gets to the invitation, 3,000 are saved and baptized. Turns out to be a great day at church, and it all happened on a Sunday. As a matter of fact, this event goes down in history as the formal birth of the New Testament church. Peter's invitation to receive Jesus as Savior in Acts 2.38 merits some explanation. Peter says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Many today have disregarded the circumstances and have built elaborate extra-scriptural doctrines upon these words. First of all, some have concluded, without any supporting scripture from the epistles, I might add, that water baptism is essential as a requirement to one's actual salvation experience. In other words, they conclude that one is not actually saved until after the water baptism. There simply is no other scripture to support this notion. If you'd like a fuller explanation of water baptism, then look at my notes on Romans chapter 6, verses 1-14. through 14. Now, what about that invitation to repent in that verse? First of all, understand this. Saving faith is saving faith, period. 
Galatians 2.16 says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. That faith of Jesus Christ package includes repentance. Here, Peter emphasizes repentance because these aren't your typical non-believers. They are religious already, but they've rejected Jesus as Messiah up to this point. So, Peter appropriately invites them to repent, the Greek word being metanoeo, meaning to change one's mind or attitude. These Jews were missing an important component in their traditional religious persuasion. And that point is the Messiah prophesied in their own scriptures. They weren't just missing Jesus. No, they'd actually turned their backs on Jesus and had rejected him. Now it's time for them to turn around and accept that Jesus really is their long-awaited Messiah. There's the repentance component. So why did Peter invite them to be baptized here if it's not a condition of salvation? Well, it was undoubtedly a matter of practice. Our modern-day paradigm for an invitation consists of standing in front of our seats while listening to a plea for people to move to the aisle and then come down front and profess Jesus as their Savior. Uh, But with thousands gathered around shoulder-to-shoulder listening to Peter preach, there were no aisles and no place for 3,000 people to stand down front. Therefore, the only practical way to identify with Christ that day was to go ahead and follow Peter down to the river and be baptized by water. That's their way of identifying with Christ on that occasion. You'll notice that the invitation of Acts chapter 3, verse 19, did not include baptism. We'll be getting to that a little later in this reading. Peter here proclaims that the receipt of the Holy Spirit comes at salvation, and he does that in his invitation. If you'd like more information on that, look at 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen in my notes there. And uh, if you want to know more about what it means exactly to be saved, then take a look at the article that I've written under the topic section of BibleTrack.org entitled, What the Bible Says About Eternal Life. Now we come to verse 42 of the chapter. And we find the daily life of the people who trusted Jesus as their Savior there on that day of Pentecost. Verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Well, these uh, early believers are so excited about the Lord's working in their midst. I mean, look at it. Verse 46 and 47, it says, And they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. These people, they went to the temple to share daily as well as from house to house. They were very, very excited about the newfound Christian life. Notice the practices of these new believers in the aftermath of the Pentecostal experience. 
In verses 44 and 45, it says they sold their possessions and contributed the proceeds to the Christian community. In verse 46, it says they met together as believers daily at the temple and in one another's homes. And in verse 46, we find that they also shared meals on a daily basis in one another's homes. These new believers were excited about life in Christ. As soon in these verses, their daily living practices were completely absorbed in serving Christ and fellowshipping with those who do. That brings us to chapter 3, where Peter heals a lame man. Verse 1. Now, when Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour, and a certain lame man from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms? And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up, and denied him in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One, and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. And kill the prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did this, as did also your rulers." But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began." For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days." Ye are all the children of the prophets, and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. 
Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, send him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Peter and John go to the temple, and there they see a lame man begging as usual. Peter gets right up to the point. I mean, he gets in the man's face and he says, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he does rise up and walk. He goes right into the temple with Peter and John to the amazement of those standing around watching. I feel a message coming on. And so does Peter. Peter recognizes an opportunity to preach and gets right to the facts in verse 14 where he says, But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. If that wasn't clear enough, Peter says to the crowd of Jews in verse 15, that they had killed the Prince of Life. Whoa, that's some heavy preaching. Isn't Peter afraid someone's going to get a little angry at statements like that one? No worry. Peter's empowered and he's emboldened by the Holy Spirit of God. Peter's message, like that of Acts chapter 2, is a historical progression of God's working with Israel to bring the Messiah and salvation to all the people. The bottom line is the same each place. You need to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now Peter drives the point home once again, and he says this, This lame man was healed through faith in this very same Messiah, Savior, the very same one that you crucified. The invitation of Acts 3.19 requires some explanation also. It says, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Well, Peter is preaching to an audience gathered at the temple. We assume, therefore, that these are practicing Jews gathered there at the hour of prayer, according to verse 1. Again, as on the day of Pentecost, these aren't your typical non-believers. They're already religious, but they've rejected Jesus as the Messiah up to this point. So Peter appropriately invites them to repent, the Greek word metanoeo, meaning to change one's mind or attitude, and then to be converted, the Greek word epistrepho, and it means to turn around or turn toward. In other words, they were missing an important component in their traditional religious persuasion, the Messiah prophesied in their own scriptures. They weren't just missing Jesus, they had actually rejected Jesus, turned their backs on Jesus. Now it's time to turn around, repent and be converted, and see that Jesus, after all, is their long-anticipated Messiah. Peter's invitation is not a typical invitation for salvation because there weren't typical people in the audience to whom he was speaking. However, the faith of Christ... That term is important, the faith of Christ. That's what's needed here for salvation. A component of the faith of Christ, by the way, is repentance. Incidentally, notice the clear reference in verses 22 and 23 to the prophecy of Moses concerning the Messiah. Here's what it says. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Peter's making a clear reference here 
to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 22. That's where Moses prophesies the coming Messiah. Jews in the first century all look forward to the time when Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 22 would be fulfilled. Peter proclaims to them that this has already happened in the person of Jesus Christ. If you'd like more information on this prophecy of Moses, then look at the article that I've written under the topic section of BibleTrack.org entitled, Moses Prophesied the Messiah. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.BibleTrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.